Rick Madison, Rick and Friends. Uh, we have a guest here today, and and based on some smoke in the valley, I thought it was very timely to bring in his expertise. He's also got a great wrist shot. Uh, I play hockey with this man. His name is Rob Selby, a district manager engineer uh, at Tiger Cat Industries. Welcome to the big show, Rob. Thanks, Rick. <laughs> so, Rob, uh, we'll just chat a little bit about... Uh, well, just framing what what Tiger Cat is, and and if you can kind of give us a, an overview of the company, and maybe some of the historical elements of why Tiger Cat means something to to our forestry, especially. Okay, yeah, uh, Tiger Cat's a privately owned Canadian company. I, I've been with them for twenty five years, and they um, specialize in off road uh, industrial heavy equipment and material processing equipment. And it's sold, um, you know, they're Canadian based company, but we sell our machines uh, around the world in over 40 different countries. So, and many times our companies are used for not just harvesting trees, but also as part of the uh, forest management um, programs around the world. So we see lots of different approaches there. And that's uh, always interesting when you come home to British Columbia here after seeing what they're doing around the world and especially times like right now when there's smoke <laughs> it's a topic that's I'm pretty passionate about so well especially because you work down in California so you, you know you get to see a broad range of of different forest management practices I would think in in your scope of work yeah you bet we're, we're especially right especially in recent years we're seeing a lot of different approaches in different countries and um, I guess one way to so, summarize it would be we we make a whole bunch a whole variety of different machines but we're seeing different machines sold in different countries and some being used more aggressively in, in a forest management approach especially with regards to um, maybe a clear, clearing and fuel reduction for fire prevention and okay. then some other countries, not so much. And just, uh, I, I know there's a lot of variables involved with different climates and different uh, terrains and tree species. But um, at the end of the day, a lot of countries all have the same challenge of increased um, fire risk there. And um, I think we're we're seeing different approaches. They also have different variables of land ownership too. To some country, you know, the Canadian country where the majority of the um, forests are owned by by uh, different um, federal or provincial governments and then you go to some other countries like in in the US and um, um, some other countries where there's more of a mix of private ownership through some large landowners like uh, real estate investment trusts all, all the way down to some family-owned timberlands and um, sometimes that I th seems to have a, an effect on the different approaches and um, how I guess, and and then combined with uh, different budgets, like you know, California obviously is a, a big economy and probably has a bigger budget. To maybe that's one of the reasons we see some more aggressive spending on this, is they've got a bigger budget to deal with it. But certainly, there we're selling a lot of certain models of machines in California right now that are being used to as part of um, uh, forest management um, solution that we're not seeing as much in in british columbia i would say so it's interesting to me now you're you're passionate about it because of your work but also because uh you shared with me that you were part of the 2003 fires in Kelowna as well 
Yeah, you bet. You bet. I guess having recently moved, like we moved to Kelowna in um, the late 90s. I moved out here for Tiger Cat to develop our our support and dealer networks in Western Canada and Western U.S. So recently moved moved out west to Kelowna and, you know, loved, loved the loved the city here, but living through a fairly in the first few years living through a, a devastating fire like that it's certainly something you don't you don't forget and I guess it sticks with you as trying to always watch what they're doing around the world and see if anybody's got something that's working and then hopefully share that back to uh to locally here and say hey let's let's get on this because I don't not not just the, the devastation of the fires but just even you know, a lot of the year, recent years, having several several weeks of our summer taken away when uh, you know when the smoke gets bad here too. And uh, you know, look, looking out the window here today, you're, <laughs> this year's been a good summer so far, but still, we're gonna probably see a little bit of that again this year. So it'd be nice to nice to uh, reduce that. So yeah, you, you know, I I kind of get the same thing too. Is when I when I see smoke or I watch lake levels as well, because that's also an indicator of how much rainfall we have and or, you know, it, it, it's just funny how that, that 2003 fire manifests itself in, in different ways with different people. I mean, uh, I lost my house. Did you, did you lose your house in 2003 or? No, we, we were, we were evacuated and we were kind of on, on the edge of it. A lot of debris dropping on our yard, but luck, luckily we didn't lose our house, but we're still evacuated for a couple of weeks there. Well, the, uh, let me let me recommend a cedar shake roof if you ever want your house to go up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've heard. I had lots of friends that you're not yourself and quite a few other friends that lost their houses in that fire. So, so no, it's 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 become a hot topic, and and I think and sorry about the pun there, um, but it's it is one of those things where I just uh, I wanted to have this conversation with you because you know I, again more opinions around the table about forest management and and anything you see in other countries where. It, it seems to me like we have all this devastation, we lose all that timber resource, and, you know, we add so much to the uh, the atmosphere with, you know, with the fires. And, and again, BC's filled with forest. Like, do we have a chance at even even remotely trying to, to sway Mother Nature a little bit? Because forest fires are man-made, but there's also some naturally occurring ones with lightning and everything else. Is there, you know, what are you seeing in the other countries that they're doing really well? Um, they, I, I think they have a good, they seem, they seem to be able to pull all the groups together that have an interest in trying to come up with, uh, I guess, a, a mutual agreement on, on the goal of reducing fires and then trying to agree that a business model is needed, which, you know, some somewhere, some somebody's got to pay, f- there's, uh, there's a cost to uh, managing the forests and, so, you know, somebody's got to pay for it. And t- typically one of the solutions is involving the forest products companies can derive some rev- revenue as, as part of the wood that's removed that hopefully can afford to pay for the, uh, some of that work that needs to be done to uh, improve the health of the forest by, by clear, you know, clearing, reduce, reducing the fuel load and, um, hopefully reduce the um, risk of fire and, and disease. And we're kind of, a, a lot of places are in, we're sort of in a, a weird situation now that um, if, you, if you go way back in history, that um, a lot of these forests were 
almost naturally managed or the indigenous mm-hmm. groups if used to st- actually start fire you know they living out in the forest they would realize they were the fuel loading was high and they they naturally start fires at regular intervals and um then you know we, we, people moved in built housing developments and kind of got off track a little bit on that now we're trying to almost play, play catch up and then combine with the changing climate there's a lot of factors in play here that it's not really anybody's fault it's just the way it's played out historically but now that now there's some money needs to be spent to get back ahead of it i think there so so you bring up a good point rob which is when we when we take a tree down and again i'm I'm simplifying it here but you take a tree down it's not like you're taking away something that's going to go in a landfill like i mean we're going to use that that lumber we're going to use that wood unless it's diseased or um, but for the most part, we're actually using that as an asset, but we're also maybe, you know, it, it just seems like there's not a, there's not a thought process when it comes to interface. Like when I look out the windows and I see West Kelowna, like there's a lot of houses dotting the ridge that have a lot of tree line around them. And I'm like, man, if you, if you start a fire down on the bottom and it races up the mountain, like those houses are toast. Because I, I, you know, I, I wonder about some of the remote regions where you don't have a fire hydrant close, and you know, there's a whole bunch of things that are going to be detrimental to those homes. But one of them is they have a lot of interface forest around them. Yeah. So, in in your, have you seen where this business model gets presented to different communities or the whole state? Like, how does that work? Uh. We see a mix. It's some, sometimes it's driven by federal government. Like I use U.S. for an example. Some areas where it's being pushed by the federal government. Some areas being pushed by the state. Like this, for example, the state of California or, or Utah or Oregon. And then sometimes it's pushed by um, just residential developments and even sometimes even insurance insurance companies too. Because sometimes some some of these proper insurance companies are starting to look at the situation and and ask what is your what is your fire risk prevention plan and if you don't have one it's uh, you know potentially not going to have access to house insurance or you're going to your rates are going to skyrocket so there, that that's sort of driving the economy of some more money being spent on this it's uh, it's almost, you know almost necessary because you know the other you're paying out the other end, and those costs. People are starting to realize those cut. Whether, you know, the the claims on lost houses and just the uh, lost timberland, just the the um, budget to fight fires. When you know, when with uh, aerial planes and helicopters, it's I, not cheap. I saw the the U.S. Uh, the, the I think the from what I remember, the U.S. Uh, budget for for um, the f- wildfire fighting is, you know, in the billions of dollars there. So you think, take some of that money and spend it proactively if it helps to reduce them. That's definitely a good investment. So that's an interesting word, proactive. And and, and again, when we think of uh, the last few, few years when we've had so many forest fires around the Okanagan, you know, a lot of people are just questioning, okay, are we doing enough to manage the forest? Are we taking the fuel off the like are, are we taking it out in other words are we mig- migrating towards harvesting these these forests that are really they're close to the interface area around the community like 
is is you know and, and again i'm not putting you on the spot here but are we moving towards that or does it feel like we're still kind of stuck in the same cycle of well forest fire is going to happen and that's just the way it is like do you see a lot of initiatives from the government that are pushing forward and and trying to help us with these interface fires yeah there there are there are initiatives um like I, I think there's some there's some government uh, money that's earmarked for those type of proactive projects. So and and that's good because it I there is no um, easy black and white solution to how how to manage um, an interface forest or, or reduce the fire. It's easy to say you want to reduce the fire risk in a forest, but the solution it is is complicated because it depends on the area, the terrain, the trees. So, but at the same time, the only way to figure it out is to keep trying different, you know, try different approaches and see which ones work. And what, one thing that's interesting for us is we, uh, like our uh, tiger cat, we've done some stories and we have in our, it's called the between the branches magazine. And a couple of the stories we've done recently have been, um, in some other countries where they had done a, um, uh, approach of sort of forest uh, thinning approach with the main focus being on fire risk prevention and then a fire did come through afterwards and burnt all the trees except for the area that was that was uh, thinned out and they you know it either stopped or, or or burned quickly through at a low level and those trees survived so I've got a couple stories if those are interesting stories to, to, to share because not that everybody's got all the solutions, but some people have done some things that seem to be working, and it's uh, that's encouraging to hear because you don't want you want to know there are solutions that could work there. And I've and I've heard even other people trying to um, also figure out practical solutions that would maintain those forests too, like including you know li- livestock or different things to to uh, free range in that area to keep the after they've went and cleared it to try to maintain it in a, a state of low, I guess, low fire risk too there. So okay. there's a lot of interesting approaches around the world right now trying to figure out how to how to maintain a healthy uh, fire-resistant forest there. So livestock, that's an interesting one. So that would take the fuel off the floor, I would imagine, and then it would keep, well, it would obviously maintain that. But the other one is uh, different trees... And again, I, I don't know much about the different varieties of trees that grow in the forest, but I do know, like one of the foresters was talking about, one of the trees secretes this sap that that actually is, is like a, an accelerant for the tree. Like it, every 25 years it secretes this and it's really quite flammable. And he says it's nature's way of saying this tree's got to go <laughs> and it's a natural reset button for the forest. Hmm. And we've we've got these mature trees that again, you told the story of the indigenous people lighting fires to make sure that we were properly resetting the forest. So is this something, you know, do we have to do maybe more more controlled burns in the winter? Is that something we need to even look at? Yeah, I think the controlled burns are poss- one, one, one tool that's, you know, available. And then, you know, like some of our equipment is sometimes trying to provide another tool that could be an alternative just is control burns for sure historically have been um, a very effective tool at um, 
you know, maintaining the ground level fuels at a healthy amount to, you know, reduce the fire risk. But the challenge now with, um, with burning is the air, qu- air quality oh, right. challenge. Yeah. That's only, uh, so that that's a tricky, it, it is, it is a good tool, but n- now with, um, you know, back, I guess back many years ago, people could just kind of move around out of the valley. You know, now we've got housing developments and, in, in, in all these areas that, um, any any burning um, affects the air quality f- fairly quickly, and I know it's very restrictive um, when you can get you know permits to allow open burning. So that's one of the debates. It, it, you know, it's it's a good tool, but at the same time, you're going to get pushback from uh, peop- you know anybody who's uh, worried about the air quality in a valley. In fact, we one of our products is uh, we. Besides the harvesting equipment, we make um, grinders and chippers and mulchers, which are machines that can reduce uh, reduce wood wood waste down down to uh, you know a finer amount. And and we also make a carbonator, which is a a unit. It's like a, a track mount unit that can move around and burn burn wood waste, and it's quenched so it uh, it actually creates a biochar product. So you're, oh, interesting. So you're you're trying to burn you're trying to burn in a lot more with a lot less emissions and then you're also capturing carbon in the quenching to create a biochar product. So that's a fairly new product for us there, but we, it's another tool that I think could be helpful in um, alternatives to just uh, just a just an open burn or a burn to uh, reduce the fuel loading. So I was speaking to a, a fellow who was part of the 2003 uh, fires. He was helping, uh, he put together a ragtag crew and and they were fighting the fires out in June Springs. And uh, he was mentioning that, you know, he was pulling dentists and farmers and all they had was a bucket and a, and a hoe and a shovel, really. And, and they were building what was basically, he said, about a foot. Like he said, it wasn't a very big fire break, but just a foot. And... And do it by doing that, based on the terrain, wind sort of thing. And when the winds died down, they actually made some some effective progress in saving some homes with this very small firebreak. So, you know, based on tiger cat being able to, you know, fundamentally take out these trees or, or building a firebreak with with these machines, it seems like it wouldn't take much to build some some fire breaks just before communities or or just when we're we're trying to like say that one hectare that's going to burn but then we're going to build this fire break so that we don't lose like 10 hectares like you know what i mean like mm-hmm. it seems like it would be very easy to start looking at the land and going let's just start building like harvesting this wood along this this corridor because we feel like the fire based on the wind and based on a bunch of different factors, we would be able to figure out the migration of a fire. Is that possible, or is or is that just crazy? I, be, I believe so. It's uh, maybe not as easy as people think, from my understanding. But um, like I know, for example, that that two thousand three fire, I uh, there was um, a bunch of our machines and our contractors stationed at where the CNC is now, and at the time they were on call waiting in that fire. And when that fire kicked up and started to come around the top to the other part of Kelowna, they, a bunch of the machines actually went and cut 
a fire break that stopped that fire from burning more houses here in Kelowna. And wow. I, I, I actually been disappointed over the years that that really never, that story, or I don't know if, I never saw it in the news or anything. I thought that's, uh, there's more to the story. Like that fire was bad enough as it was, and it had potential to actually take out, you know, sort of double the amount of houses it took out there. But it was, it was a combination of, um, having the right equipment and the right contractors all ready to go that uh, quickly were able to cut a fire break that, that did stop it. So it's a kind of a good story to tell there. It is good. And, and Ron Matusi, ex-city uh, manager, he said that they were actually going to create like, you know, a last stand at KLO. <laughs> like he said, yeah. we actually talked about KLO as this is where the fire ends, yeah. no matter what. And I was like, KLO? That's like, crazy. <laughs> like when you think of the swath of houses and land and just all that and, and where where the fire went to, I mean, that's the, that's a great success story for Tiger Cat is, yeah, like, I mean, when, they, when they're actually even thinking about just doing a fire guard, I guess, at, at KLO, you, you got to understand that's a, a new level of devastation that we never hit, thank goodness. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting, you know, the, the different, the way people look at, um, you know, equipment and our, our, you know, our customers that own our equipment. And, you know, sometimes I think there's a bit of a negative, um, sort of a negative stereotype about them, you know, which is, which is frustrating for me, because I, I know a lot of our customers, for one, a lot of them live in areas that are close to forests. They've lived there their whole lives. You know, if I was ever to ask what I what I should do with a forest, I'd ask some of our customers, even though sort of a negative connotation is them being mm-hmm. not very environmentally friendly. A lot of these guys are probably the, the most knowledgeable of, within my friend group that I would ask about things. And, you know, it's just interesting the perception of of that them as a them as people and then just even our equipment. You know, we... We, we do shows like there's a there's a show in Northern California every year and um, on the Friday and the Saturday they have um, they have a program with the local environment or the local elementary schools that uh, bring kids by to tour the show and it's always we, we each do a little presentation on each of the machines and what they do and it's always interesting to watch the teachers and the kids and the questions <laughs> they ask and I can tell some of them are not really uh, not 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 really friendly to hey. you, but the la- after the, that's in it's in Redding, California, and a co- you know a few years ago they had a very devastating fire that quickly um, burnt burned through uh, a, a couple towns there, and so quickly that even some some people couldn't get out in time, and that lost some lives there too. And I remember um, I remember doing that presentation, and a little girl asked me, and she said, "Oh, are those the machines that come in and?" Um, cut down the trees to stop fires. I thought it's good, you know, that's good. Some, it, it is changing people's perspective on, you know, there's a lot of, over the years, there's been some negative connotations to logging and, and for, for valid reasons there, but it's, it's, um, things have changed. Like there's a lot of, uh, good, just like in Kelowna, there's a lot of good, a lot of, uh, good things about having a bunch of contractors and and machines ready to save your city you know well as someone who had their their house burned down in 2003 you, you got a very friendly audience here yeah yeah <laughs> for sure <laughs> so, 
so maybe we should talk a, a little bit about the machines that you you do carry. So uh, I've I've heard of skitters and I've heard of various things, but I mean, when I'm when I'm thinking of a, a machine, I would know. Um, you know, are those 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 the ones that kind of gnaw through the top? They spin it on its side and then it takes the branches off and you know, and that places it on a log truck like within like three minutes or something like that. Would be would that be an example of a tiger cat? machine i guess yeah there there's um there's the the harvesting machines or like in this area you hear a lot the one term called feller buncher it's a machine that has a, a saw head on that uh will cut cut the tree cut the tree off and then it can collect multiple trees and then put them down in a bundle mm -hmm. the skitter skitter will come along or, uh, and pick up those trees and take them out to to roadside or, or for a forwarder, skitter picks it up with a big grapple. A forwarder has a grapple that picks them up and puts them on uh, bunks on the back, sort of like an off-road truck. Okay. He, both machines bring them to the roadside, and then um, there's a next stage will be processing the trees, which is that that's um, taking the limbs off and then profiling the tree and cutting it to the lengths that that the mill needs, and then there'd be a, a loader. It's going to load them on the trucks. And then you, the log trucks that you see in town there. So it'd be interesting to uh, to again see if how quickly, and it sounds like in two thousand three, you, you know your machines were really <laughs> set to go and and did what they're supposed to do, which is create that massive fire break in a very short amount of time. It sounds like because when a fire is coming down, because we had, I think it was level five. Yeah, which is unheard of in in forestry circles of of how intense that fire was, and you have the candling of the trees. It seems like those machines should be at the ready for a place like Kelowna because it seems like we are, as always, just on the cusp of you know it feels like that for someone who had their house burned down that we're always on the cusp of something, and I I get a little uneasy in July and August, like it just feels like that. Yeah, for sure. And is and are the machines readily available through this community through the valley, or would we have to uh, like are they stationed anywhere, or are they all just privately owned? Mostly all private, privately owned in, in British Columbia here, but then some places, some parts of the world, um, like California, Cal Fire themselves has uh, a fairly big budget and and fleet of their own equipment there so i think every place should have a mix of the privately owned as well as the uh you know the equipment and tools that are owned by the um you know the the forestry themselves there and, so, and that would include not just the ground base but that would include like the the air the support air support too so do we have an idea of what the government has at their disposal to fight a fire if if uh if God forbid one one came through town, kind of thing. Yeah, I think I I don't know I don't know all the you know I don't know all the ins and outs of that, but I like I know they typically will have um, have uh, try to have agreements worked out with a lot of the privately owned contractors. So it's probably another reason to have a healthy forestry economy. The secondary uses of that equipment being being around and available is, uh, you know, helpful in those situations. I, I did find it interesting. I think it was last year there was some uh, pushback 
when we had uh, those devastating fires. Um, and apparently, and again, anecdotal evidence, and I, I you know, I'm not going to say that this is fact checked or anything, but there was machines at the ready going in to help with um, building a, a fire break around a fire. And there were some media reports that uh, the ministry said, no, we don't have the insurance for you to be that close to the fire. So we're going to push you back. And the public heard about that and said, well, wait a second, if they're there to help and they're forestry people, you know, why wouldn't you, why wouldn't you let them in? And, and of course, a lot of, you know, some people had some property damage and everything else. And, and of course they were even more insistent that whoever can help should help with a forestry. But I guess that's a very real thing is the insurance aspect of fighting a fire. Yeah. I would think. Yeah. And that's, that's not a. That's not unique to um, Canada or British Columbia. I've heard that same scenario play out in, in other countries too, where um, there's some frustration because there there was some tools available to fight a fire, but you know that some of the red tape of getting the okay to do it quick enough um, what wasn't there. Not you know that's not a new challenge. That that challenge plays out a lot of times in in government. You know you think about you think about fire fires and sometimes you've got uh, you've got a lot of people that all have to agree on things quickly because you you've got a lot of parties involved you've got multiple landowners you've got dip, you've got uh, local municipal governments provincial governments federal governments sometimes and getting everybody to say we need to decide pretty quick if we if we wait till tomorrow it's too late <laughs> so i've heard that same complaint not just in British Columbia. I've heard it in California. I've heard it in Oregon and other countries. So that's, uh, but that, that, you know, out of that, I think a lot of people are trying to streamline that process so that you can more readily deploy the tools available quickly. That's one thing, you know, forest fires and just forest management in general, you think about even the pine beetle, um, you know, both examples of where, Mother Nature moves pretty quickly, so you better you better try and figure out how you you have an efficient system ready to react to things. Because if you wait, you've missed your window, and you know we look at look at what happens. So. so the reason why this conversation is is so important, I think, is obviously you know there's a bit of smoke that's gone into the valley, but we also have you know and and again, I'm always trying to seek different perspectives and different opinions on possible solutions. Um, and I I think, of course, of I think it's North or South Dakota has really created a, a very proactive way of dealing with their forest, which is we're going to space trees. We're going to take that fuel off the ground. Now, again, they don't have huge, huge swaths of, of forestry like we do. Um, but they're also looking at different varieties of trees like deciduous trees and you know versus coniferous and you know they're just trying to figure out which trees and and the jack pine maybe it has a thicker bark and, and the fire has to burn intense to get around the bark and then sometimes you'll see a fire go through and there'll be a bunch of jack pine sitting there like i'm interested in how can we move forward because it seems like we have these assets which is the timber we, we can probably build some some asset allocation, like earmark some of those trees towards fighting fires proactively. And I, th- and, and I could be wrong, but it feels like the best way forward is to work on a fire before it starts. 
Yeah. Doesn't, doesn't oh, for it? sure. For yeah. sure. And like even even a step before that is even before the trees are even planted. I, I know there is I, the, any of the people I've met in the, the civil culture or planting side of the business that, you know, you can bet that's uh, that's a topic that they're looking at is, is this climate change affecting species and choices and, you know, trying to anticipate what you should be replanting an area for the, for the future. So there's, um, you know, I guess I'm, I'm an optimist that there's, there's, I've been 25 years I've worked at TigerCat. I've seen technology evolve so quickly. And, you know, we think about the technology that's out there to track, um, tree trees and growth rates and disease and they you know combine that with the technology the internet and information sharing and um, some of the sensors the sensor tools they have that can can uh, collect data on the forests it it you know these are all challenges but there are some there's a lot of really interesting things happening to try and see the bigger picture on forest health and just you know answer those questions what trees should you be planting how you should be managing them what and and how it that this besides forest health and fire prevention the, the other big part of it is uh, carbon just carbon capture too that's as as everybody starts to get more uh, focused on um, the climate change and forests forests are a big part of the carbon capture solution too so also, another reason to maintain healthy forests and try and maximize the, the carbon capture part of it. So there is a lot of money being spent around the world on all kinds of interesting technologies. So that that's the that's the only, uh, you know, I guess, I guess there's you know, talking about a lot of <laughs> bad things here, but the good side of it is there's a lot of pretty interesting things coming along that could really help uh, answer some of these questions in a, in, you know, in a, Rather than guess, like I think over the years, a lot of these things. One of the challenges we, everybody's been guessing at it. Sometimes right, but sometimes wrong. And there's a lot of a lot of technology coming along that's going to help answer just you know forests, healthcare, whatever. You're going to help answer some of those questions and better, hopefully, be be able to solve some of these problems. So that's. Uh, I'm an optimist too, Rob. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully we're around long enough to see the <laughs> see the results, right? <laughs> so you know, in, and on this show, the odd time we take a a little bit of a run at the NDP government. So the odd time, not all the time, but just sometimes. <laughs> um, but eventually, you would say, "Geez, we spent two hundred million fighting fires last year. Maybe, just maybe, we should allocate even ten million or twenty million towards." really diving into um, building fire breaks and, and uh, you know, maybe figuring out, okay, when we're, when we're harvesting, how about we start being very strategic with the areas we harvest? So, you know, this is really close to West Kelowna, Rose Valley. I know it's, you know, we're going to maybe reshape some of the, the skyline here a little bit, but we're gonna also going to build a safety zone so that that fire, we have some time to get people out, you know, and, and we fundamentally are not endangering a neighborhood. And I, I start to ask those questions because I, I find that's, that makes sense to me like that. And I'm not sure how, how you earmark timber. I don't know how that's 
allocated or I don't know how you even bid on it. But it seems to me like even starting to think about how do we protect communities? How do we protect homes? How do we protect people's lives? And again, you talked about the carbon. That's the other side of that too, which is we're not we're not adding to, like we're not just throwing that in the junkyard. Like we're going to use that naturally occurring resource and, and we're going to use that for good, which is, you know, building things. So I don't know. I Part of me is a little bit frustrated that we spend so much money in fighting it, but why don't we spend some of that money, more of it, towards proactively engaging it, I guess. Yeah, you you bet. That That's a common message I, I hear again around the world. Everybody's asking the same question. How can we keep spending these huge amounts of money without taking a portion of that and spending it to try and um, reduce reduce the, the fires? And, and, and that is happening, right? The question is, is it happening fast enough there that's that's it isn't rob yeah (laughs) (laughs) and again i don't know that and and you raise a good point which is we don't know what other initiatives are out there and we're just speaking from the mindset of you know a couple guys sitting around and and who had who were generally directly affected by a fire and obviously our our awareness is probably a lot higher because i lost my home and you work in the forestry industry and, and again, you get to see management practices from different uh, regions, which I find fascinating because you get this perspective that, you know, people here maybe not don't see as much. Is, is there a, uh, do you think California or Utah or, or is there a state that does it very well or a country that does it very well in your estimation? Well, Cal- uh, Cal- California seems really aggressive on the amount of money they're investing in proactive work that way and I you know I could kind of gauge it by in a lot of areas in Canada the majority of our machines are being sold still to work in in harvesting trees for you know for a wood products company so that the main thrust behind their um, their business is still harvesting trees that then the main focus is still to um, you know deliver deliver logs to create uh, forest products um, that's t- typical of most places around the world but in comparison in, in California right now um, a, quite a high percentage of our machines are, are being deployed for um, contracts like um, budget budgeted contracts to go out and say there's still some um, wood products being um, taken out as part of the process, but that's not the main driver. The main driver is you need to go and um, reduce the uh, fire risk and improve the health in these forests. Big, and they're big contracts covering, you know, um, like one of our contractors I talked to last week, covering uh, um, thousands of acres. It's a huge multi-year contract. So not seeing as much in, in comparison i i'd say california is spending a lot more now i know i don't know if it's a fair comparison because they're a lot bigger economy with a lot bigger um population and de- you know developments mixed in with the forests there and then you've got you know some big companies down there to contribute you know it, it's not just houses and people so when um one of the fires took out 
some of their power lines that fed into the Silicon Valley. And I, you know, I can imagine if, I, I, I don't know this, but I just imagine if, if, if the power goes out at Google, I'm sure, I'm sure uh, some money gets spent pretty quickly there or whatever. <laughs> so that, that's, that's where you think, remember the areas we're talking about down there, there, there it's a lot, it's a big economy, but we're definitely seeing um, large amounts being spent on getting, you know, trying all these different approaches and getting on it there. And I, that's, I hope, hope to see that spread north. Hope, hope we can find ways to afford that. So it seems like a, you know, you, you just raised a good point, which is partnerships in California where, you know, industries that are affected by fires, you know, again, engaging them and saying, hey, do you want to be part of this and, and innovative solutions? And again, if you throw enough money at something, generally things happen yeah. in, in the right light. And I find that, uh, you know, when you take a California, which seems to every year get more and more like the the drought just seems to keep going and and it just seems like every time i turn on the tv there's you know another fire in california and people are fleeing their homes and i would think insurance companies are very very interested in this conversation and they want to see some more um and they might start you know earmarking or or setting different classes for insurance based on how proactive a community is or a region or a province or a country on what are you doing to to make sure that nothing happens to these these houses we're insuring or businesses because they're very much a big part of this conversation oh for sure and I, i and i do think that if if they are involved we're we're talking about money yeah they have a lot of it and i'm sure that they would be very interested in in that kind of proactive conversation about fire management? Like, I mean, are, are insurance companies part of TigerCat at all? Like, is there any kind of money flow from from TigerCat insurance companies, that kind of thing? Or is that not part of their conversation? Not not that are not directly to TigerCat, but I think it would be more to the uh, the local, like at a local level, we'd probably see that. Would you, um, and when I'm thinking about people that are invested in it in in bc especially would the government and again i'm just this is a secret message for the government can we start paying attention to how much we spent on firefighting last year and then again what we're going to spend this year even though we had a, a very wet spring it feels like you know we had about two weeks of of hot weather and and boom, we're we're back in it again. Is that what it feels like to you too? Like yeah. two weeks of of heat, and then we're back at it. Yeah, for sure. Um, and, and from your perspective, is Tiger Cat like one of those places where do you guys get hammered by environmentalists? It seems like you're a little bit gun shy. Oh, for sure, for sure. We're kind of I, I. Well, we we look at it. It's interesting for us. We worry about even. Like our company's grown quickly. We have, you know, I believe around 2,000 employees now. So I, I even, when we have new people joining our company, I like them to understand more about what we do. Because I don't, you know, I th- think more with with kids in school and in college right now and about to enter the workforce, you know, I, I think the younger generation um, are looking more... You know, a job needs to not just be a, a source of income. I think it's also more importantly wanting to look at uh, 
doing something you enjoy, but also something that you feel good about. And, you know, I see all these young people joining our company. I, I want, don't want them to turn on the TV and hear, a, you know, an environmentalist um, maybe have a negative spin on, you know, logging and, and our equipment rather than see that um, there's a bunch of things we're doing that I believe are, are potentially part of the solution, not part of the problem there. And that's uh, it's a good met. That's a good met. But certainly, I think sometimes we are painted as the bad guys there a little bit for sure. So I guess one of the ways forward, Rob, is is for people to sit down around a table and and really figure out a, I guess, a business plan. Like, I mean, it does need to have a dollars and cents attached to it. There has to be a, I mean, obviously we're going to save a lot of money if we manage our forests more effectively on a whole bunch of fronts. And I think we can all agree on that, but there has to be like, you have a, a wonderful renewable resource that actually is worth money, especially in the last couple of years. I mean, it's, it's worth a lot more, but it seems like they go hand in hand. Like, um, building fire breaks and, and really t paying attention to forests and, and really planning forests better would actually generate a ton of revenue. And then with that revenue, we can start being proactive. Yeah, you bet. You bet. I, I think that's an important message now more than ever, because, you know, co coming out of COVID, I think a lot of governments are probably in a tight spot with their uh, financial situation. So I think any you know, you can dream up all the different possible solutions, but it certainly needs to include a, a business plan that includes the, you know, the revenue to pay for some of the proactive work that needs to be done. There's no doubt that, um, you know, it's like I said about Tiger Cat, the, the forest product companies are, are sometimes painted as the bad guys too, but in any of the areas where it seems like they're, um, they're ahead of the game on, on forest management and fire, um, I guess fire prevention, it seems like it it all started with uh, all those groups being open-minded enough to sit down and hear each other out. And, and, and maybe the, the fires are the fires are maybe uh, a chance for everybody to agree on one thing is you maybe don't agree on all, everything about what's the best use of a fire, but I think everybody could agree that a wildfire that burns through is not good for any of those people sitting at the table, they could all agree that's not good. So maybe that, maybe that opens that discussion up and say, Hey, let's, you know, let's all maybe be willing to compromise a little and come up with something that works for all of us. And if it means it, it avoids uh, a wildfire. You're probably all better off, even if you're not getting everything you want there. So I, and that's happened there. I I've heard of cases in the U S West and certain States where that those exact types of, group meetings have happened and it seems like that kind of got everything rolling and people are trying to work together on a plan. So, so Rob, I've, I've got this amazing control and power and influence. And I've just, I've just gave you, you're the, the minister of forest forestry for BC. And uh, I don't know if that title exists. I'm just making that up, but um, I've given you unlimited power, unlimited uh, focus. You can, you can partner with anybody what would you do tomorrow uh, to build a better future for forests and for the government and for the economy? Because again, it's probably going to be, there's going to be some uh, business plan associated with that. So I've given you that power. What would you do tomorrow? Like what would you do with the, with that kind of unlimited resources? 
I mean, we get some tiger cat. I mean, for sure. Yeah, but. you bet. You bet. <laughs> That's a tricky one because I know, um, you know, B- BC is um, there, there. There is a forest minister position, and I know um, they're they're under a lot of scrutiny from some of the environmental groups that have been protesting on on the coast. Mainly, I don't know if you've heard as much about the interior, but you know, Vancouver Island is. Oh, uh, it's a hotbed. Yeah. 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 So they, fair enough. They, they got a lot on their plate, but to me, I, I would, I would love to see them um, continue to spend more money on. You know, there, there's a, there's already, um, there's already a good uh, network of, um, con- I call them contractors or bu- business owners across the province that are already in the business of harvesting timber i would t- reach out to all of them and 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 some of them are struggling actually in in comparison to around the the world um in some some areas with the way they've shifted around the allocation of um of uh wood um i guess a wood contracts and the some areas with the environmental changes and the old growth have sort of hurt um, certain areas and certain business owners in those areas who have, you know, that a lot of these guys, that's been their business, sometimes multi-generations and, and they've got a big investment in equipment, which has now been idle because of some of these other government changes. I would say, reach out to, reach out to all of them and say, Hey, how work, try and work out a business model where, you know, they, 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 they're already spending part of their time harvesting wood, but put them, you know, also make it uh, make it a good business model for them to be kept busy. Also doing maybe if even if the market changes so that it's not economical to, you know, say the price of lumber goes down or something, like build a database of all of them and be ready to deploy them in proactive uh, force management work there. I think that takes some of that money that, get spent um, after the fact trying to fight the fires and put these guys to work and and um, you know evaluate the results see how see if it see if it starts to pay off as an investment I, my guess is it would it would and uh, I think there's a little bit there's there's a, a program called the forest that's FES or forest enhancement mm, yeah I have program. heard of that yep and so that that's I, that's sort of a, a program I believe is to kind of move in that direction. So so just just more of that. I what I would love to see, and as much as you can afford, that's the challenge. And then try to uh, try to hopefully recover. You know, become. You know, we 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 are. I guess it's a double-edged sword. We're blessed with all these beautiful forests in British Columbia, but now, 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 in some ways, they're becoming a bit of a liability for us. So let's try and continue to have a, a healthy industry where you can derive revenue for it and then invest that wisely back to keep keep the forest healthy. Which is which is what I see in some other countries and some of the privately owned land. I would say it's managed more intensely. What along with that means I'd say it's it's definitely in a stage that's less risk of uh, of fire disease because they have invested more in, in the management side of it well you'd have my vote if <laughs> if you ever ran for the Ministry of Forest um, 
so Rob, I really appreciate uh, the time to to share in because uh, I mean I, this is such a topical issue. I mean this is so huge and and BC again as you mentioned, blessed with forests, but we just can't seem to wrap our heads around <laughs> like it, it, it's it's often frustrating for me. I'm not saying for you, but it's frustrating for me that sometimes that needle moves too too slowly for me and and I really want to see. Um, BC become a world leader in in forestry management practices, and we have all this intelligence scattered through the province. Like we have so many big thinkers, and and again, I I just feel like the forestry uh, resource has been somewhat pushed down in the last few years. Not sure if that's government related or not, but it just feels like you know we we have this abundant resource and and i get the old growth and i, I understand the emotional ties i i really do i just want to make sure that again we open up our minds to what's going to get us to a better future so that we don't have these devastating episodes of fires and that you know we deploy the resources and we get these partnerships going because it seems like if we're able to do that uh, man, our future is so bright and so vibrant. And again, I'm an optimist like you. I think we could do that if we all get the right people around the table. So, yeah. Yeah, you bet. And remember, you know, at the end of the day, the other thing going going for the industry is that as, uh, you know, the um, global warming and, you know, the carbon um, emissions continues to be a, a big topic, wood, wood, is, wood is still a... Uh, uh, the best carbon neutral building material and um, that continues to be an advantage too so you know we should keep pushing in fact I hear you know I heard the Kelowna airport is gonna their expansion is gonna there's some um, government money earmarked to do that out of wood which I think is that's that's great to showcase that to remind people of that because no doubt I I've been in you know with the with my job, I've had the opportunity to sit in on a lot of conferences, and sometimes some of the speakers are, um, you know, academics from different um, universities or colleges around the world. And I've I've seen the comparisons between, you know, different the different building materials of the, you know, whether it's steel or or concrete or, or wood, and you know, seen their analysis of the total car- carbon footprint of each of those, and you know. These aren't, um, I believe they're not biased um, presentations because they're, they're, you know, these are college professors mm-hmm. and it's pretty, pretty, sitting through that, pretty convincing. We're still in the right, I know some people think maybe it's a dying industry, but it's still, it's kind of actually a, 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 a industry of the future almost because the forests, man, managing the forests and creating wood products is pro- probably part of the uh the carbon um, climate change solution there. So that's something everybody needs to, sometimes that needs to be promoted, kind of get caught up in here and all these negative connotations to the industry. You remember, it's still, uh, we should be proud of what we're doing and uh, excited about it. Well, I am. And I I think, uh, you know, again, just having you uh, uh, share the microphone today was was kind of fun. And I learned something too. So uh, appreciate the work you do. And and man, we'll have to get you back on the big show. Thanks again, Rob. Yeah, thanks. I'd be uh, interested to hear the, your other speakers' perspectives too. It's interesting. Always interested to hear hear other uh, thoughts on the topic. So, 
Well, on the Rick and Friends show, just keep keep the lock, like just lock in the 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 dial there, Mister. Okay. <laughs> oh, I tell you. <ya. laughs>